Today's scripture comes from Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything under subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. The story is told of a Sunday school teacher who wanted to use an illustration of squirrels as an example of prepared workers. She started the lesson by saying, I'm going to describe something. I want you to raise your hand when you know what it is. And the children, they were excited to show that that they knew what the answer was, so they leaned forward eagerly. She said, I'm thinking of something that lives in trees and eats nuts. No hands went up. It can be gray or brown. It has a long, bushy tail. The children looked around at each other, but none of them raised their hands. She said, it chatters, and sometimes it flips its tail when it's excited. Finally, one little boy slowly raised his hand halfway up. The teacher, relieved, said, okay, Johnny, what do you think it is? Well, said the boy, it sure sounds like a squirrel, but I guess the answer is supposed to be Jesus. <laughs> Some of you have heard that joke so many times, and others of you are young enough that you've never heard it before. But there's a sense of irony to the joke because the, the questions that we face in life and, and the problems that we come up against, the answer is Jesus in every case. But the truth is, it's not quite that simple. Even though the answer to all of our problems is Jesus, just because he's the answer, that doesn't mean that our trust in Jesus grows quickly. Or that our trust in Jesus is easily maintained. Our souls are uniquely complex in the way that we do relationships, in the way that we struggle with relationships. And mistrust and doubt come in many forms. Suffering is one of the key weapons that Satan uses to bring distrust into our lives. Many Christians are ill-equipped to handle suffering when it comes. And I think in the same way that we feel every answer in Sunday school must be Jesus, it seems that we've adopted a theology in which the answer to suffering, which we're talking about today, the answer to suffering is always heaven. We've adopted this theology in which the answer to suffering is always heaven and only heaven. Have you ever heard anyone in a funeral home conversation who would say, well, they're in a better place. Smile. Or, well, you'll see them one day. You'll see them again. Now, 
while these statements are absolutely true, they, however, don't describe the depth or the breadth of our theology when it comes to suffering. They don't help us realize a kingdom that is both now and not yet. Because the kingdom of God is always present. It's always a present reality and a future reality. And and we're good with future reality. And we're good with not yet. So our hope and our faith is in what's to come. But the struggle for us oftentimes is how does that help us right now? We're studying the book of Hebrews, and we're picking back up today. We took the summer off and went through a series entitled Soul Rest. We took a break, we took a deep breath, and now we're jumping back into the book of Hebrews, and we're in a series that is entitled Jesus is Better. Jesus is Better. This was a letter that was written by an unknown author to Jewish Christians who were suffering suffering to overcome persecution and struggle and hardship. And the passage that we look at today providentially fits right into Jared's sermon last week from the book of Job, where we talked again about suffering. Hebrews 2 addresses the question that so many people have. If God is a good God, how does he allow pain and suffering? If Jesus has died and risen from the grave, why do we still experience so much hardship, so much suffering, so much pain? And if we're really honest, you know, some of us didn't come here this morning to be honest. We came here this morning just to do church. But if we're really honest and allow some openness within our hearts and our souls, That's not just a category or a subject for a good sermon. The pain and suffering that brings uncertainty into our life, that brings mistrust in our relationship with God, is very personal. There's some of you who you would say, it's more personal than I even care to admit or acknowledge. Today... In the study of Hebrews, we're going to uncover the truth. This is kind of the bottom line for today. Acknowledging suffering, acknowledging suffering, not avoiding it, is the path to healing. Acknowledging suffering is the path to healing. I've broken the text down into three sections that we'll interpret, and then we're going to look at some truths that will help us to explore our own suffering. So if you would turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 2. And the first point is this. We see a world without suffering. We see a world without suffering. Hebrews chapter 2. Hey, by the way, I'm just going to warn you. I'm going to get you guys to talk to me a little bit in a few minutes. So don't let me scare you, okay? And when I say, what do you think, I really mean what do you think. Like, not in your head, but through your mouth, okay? So just disclosure. I'm coming to your world. I want to hear from you. Hebrews 2, verse 5. In verses 5 through 8, at least the first portion of 8, the writer is continuing the thesis that Jesus is better. Now stick with me for a minute, because this text is very, very, very difficult. If you haven't figured that out about Hebrews, if you go searching for podcasts and say, who are all the churches who have studied through Hebrews? 
John MacArthur and a few others. You're not going to find many because this is a very, very, very difficult book to interpret and to understand. Part of that is because these were Jewish Christians who have come to worship God. And they've come to worship God through the Old Testament law, through the Old Testament covenant, through the sacrificial system. So as the writer writes to them, he's relating to them in their context. So it feels like an Old Testament book, not a New Testament book at times. Okay? And he's writing to them, relating to their previous context and the way in which they thought and worshiped. And now they've come to follow Jesus and they're facing persecution. And so the writer is trying to convince them that following Jesus is worth it. So think about that. If you're a Jew and all of your life you've gone through the sacrificial system, Old Testament law, all these festivals that remember the past narrative of Moses bringing your people out of Egypt, these incredible stories, and now Jesus is here and you're being persecuted because of Jesus, there's this great temptation just to say, we have a rich heritage. Can we not just stick with the old way? And the writer is saying, as good as those things were, Jesus is better. So in a sense, if the writer were writing to us today, he would say, as good as your Apple iPod is, as good as your Apple phone is that takes you to the glorious destinations that it takes you to, Jesus is better. If the writer were writing today, he would say, as good as your sports team is or is not, if you're an Ole Miss fan, um, Sorry, that was just cutthroat, wasn't it? (laughs) Or the hope that we put ourselves, that we place in our teams, he would say Jesus is better. I'll say it, Jesus is even better than Alabama. There. That'll lower the, watch it, Buckeye fan. All right, getting back on track. I'm way off track. So the writer is trying to relate to them in their context. Now, if you pick up in in Hebrews uh, in verse 5 through 8, The writer is revisiting Psalms 8. If you're going, where in the world is he coming from? Like he says, it's been said somewhere. He's just reminding them they're more familiar with the Old Testament than we are. He's just saying, remember, it's it's back there in the Old Testament, which means it's God's words. In Psalms 8, he's reminding them um, of what the writer has said. So look with me in in Psalms 8, in just verses 3 through 6. He's quoting. He says, when I look at your heavens. So he's outside. He's looking up. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, it begins as he's looking, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? He's talking to God. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's incredible. And crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. So the writer is in awe of God's creation in making man ruler over the earth and all that's in it. He's he's looking up at the splendor and the majesty of all that God has created. And then he's thinking, who are we in light of all these galaxies that I see? And then he's realizing as amazing and majestic as the sky is, God has created man and he's made us to be majestic because he's placed us in dominion over everything. Have you ever stopped to think what that was like? And this is where I want to hear from you. And I don't really want to hear your Sunday school answer because that's important. 
But I want to hear from you. Dream with me for a minute. What do you think it, this is going to be tough, guys. What do you think it felt? I really mean men, males. What do you think it felt like before sin entered the world? What do you think it felt like before sin entered the world? No anxiety. What else? What do you think it felt like? No guilt. Work was a joy. No fear. No shame. No trying to prove ourselves, but always feeling accepted, always feeling loved, always feeling the warmth of relationship, no striving. Stop and think about that for a moment. You have to remember that our stories, they aren't just the facts, but they're also our feelings and how we interpret them. That's important to remember when we think about even the story of creation in our own stories when it comes to suffering. We pick up in, in 8, in the second part of verse 8, and we see a world gone wrong. Look at the second part of verse 8. It's almost just like a little footnote. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Just a little footnote. Just a clarification of this text. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to Him. Something has gone wrong. Suffering is the natural consequence of living life without dependence on God. Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. I think the essence of Adam and Eve's sin was mistrust. I know it expressed itself in pride, but I think if you get down to the core heart issue, it was doubt and mistrust. They mistrusted God. And each of us have followed in Adam and Eve's path. We've sinned. And there's a lot of different ways that we could look at sin and explain sin. One way is that sin is an exaggerated self-reliance. I don't need God. I can make it on my own. I have what it takes. I'm in charge. I know best. Sounds like an American, doesn't it? I, I, I. Have you ever stopped to consider how sin fragmented the world that God created? What do you think it felt like for Adam and Eve. I think it felt like all those things that we said earlier, no anxiety, no guilt, no shame, no fear, all those things came crashing down on them in an instant. And not only did they feel the effects of sin, but they began to see the effects of sin in the fragmentation, in the parasitic aspect of sin as it clung to the earth around us. They began to see the results of disease, of tornadoes and earthquakes, of forest fires, of tsunamis. It only took one generation for murder to enter into our world after sin came in, as they began to covet, as they began to compare. It's amazing how sin has fragmented our world and how it brings suffering. 
Adam's sin has relational implications for all of us. His sin uh, brings fragmentation to everything that's lovely and everything that's natural that God has created. Sin even fragments our relationships both with God and with one another. And here's the thing that I really want us to get to. It's a needed step in understanding suffering. Sin affects each of us on a daily basis. It affects our relationships both horizontally and vertically in ways that are large and small. Now, when we think about suffering, we hate suffering. We usually try to avoid it at all costs. But the truth is that we all suffer daily. Too often when we talk about suffering, we tend to try to err on the side of positivity and optimism. And so we say, well, I might have some hardships in my life, but I don't have cancer, so it could be worse. And while that kind of mindset can be helpful, it only takes us so far because ultimately what it does is it it ends up stuffing your feelings and the suffering that you're facing, and you don't really face it. You just avoid it. Well, it could be worse. It's not as bad as. And so we just kind of tend to avoid our suffering. But we face suffering on a daily basis. And too often when we think about suffering, we do think about like Job that we uh, looked, that Jared walked us through last week. We're like, well, I'm not Job. I haven't lost my whole family, you know, and my house. So I don't guess I suffered. No, we suffer on a daily basis. I suffered last week. My car stopped on um, Sam Cooper. You know, my wife had to pull over. Something's wrong with the car again. It's already been in the shop. Took it back to the shop. Took it back to the shop again. We suffer. Sometimes for things that aren't related to us. Sometimes for things maybe that are related to us. Maybe I did get a ticket for expired tags that I should have renewed last September. I'm not sure how that happened. I don't think I got the renewal. But I got a ticket last week. Actually, it was even worse. My wife got the ticket in my car. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still hearing about that one. But we suffer, right? Sometimes for things that we do. Sometimes we're the one that's like, you're looking at the moron, it's me. But we suffer on a daily basis. The truth of the matter is, we can't escape suffering. Now, I'm kind of joking around about suffering, but let me be really honest with you. Let me be open about some other suffering that I've just, looking at my life, I've realized last year I suffered in the second half of last year. If somebody said, hey, how's it going? The first half of last year, I would have said, this is the first time in this church plant that it's felt doable. We got a good team in place. Things are rolling along. We had like 90 90 people here last Labor Day weekend. I was like, this fall, man, we're going to break 100. Like God's at work. We're growing. And you know what happened the second half of last year? Right as we reached the five-year mark when we were supposed to be self-sustaining, no more outside partners, we lost about 25% of our membership. They moved away. Some went to other churches. Some just got tired of us. That's okay. I get tired of people sometimes too. But we lost about 25% of our membership. That included 20, 25% of our, of our financial givers. Not only that, at the same time, 
coming out of the summer, I lost my administrative assistant. And then we lost our worship leader. And it was like, God, what are you doing? We're at the five-year mark. You've called us to be here. It's not like we picked the easiest place in the world to plant a church for crying out loud. Could you like at least meet us in the middle, God? Like that's what I'm thinking, if I'm really honest. And the elders and wives know, man, we got to the retreat last year and, and I was like, I'm not doing well. And they knew it. I was like, I'm tired. I love my job and I don't know how much longer I want to keep doing it. It was kind of the feeling I had. Like suffering is real. It, it enters into our lives. It comes to us and we, we can't avoid it. We can't escape it. And because of that, we need a theology of suffering. Otherwise, we will be overcome. Suffering is like a tidal wave that threatens to drown us in hopelessness and despair unless we have a life preserver to keep us afloat. You say, that sounds kind of drastic, Brad. That sounds kind of dramatic. I don't know if it's really that bad. Let me tell you a story. I talked with my parents about three weeks ago, and they said, um, you know the lady you used to rake leaves for down the street? I said, yeah. She said, they said, she's about 70, her husband's about 80. She's been caring for him. He's not doing well. And um, she called us the other day. We've been checking in on him. She called us the other day, and she said, uh, hey, the ambulance is coming. Don't come to the house until after the ambulance gets here. They're like three houses down. None of this family all my life. My dad said, uh, no, we'll come on down. She said, don't come to the house until after the ambulance gets here. Something bad is going to happen. Ambulance gets there. My mom and dad go down there. Paramedic says, this lady's laying in her bed with a gun against her head. They didn't tell me that when I came. My mom and dad walk in the living room. They talk to her. My mom and dad were the last people she knew to talk with her before she pulled the trigger and took her life. And this was what she was saying over and over again. I just can't keep doing it. I just can't keep the yard up. I can't keep the house up. I can't keep taking care of him. I just can't keep doing it all. She was overcome by her suffering. I think for those of us who are young, we feel like we live in this world where we kind of figure life out the older we get. But the truth of the matter is, is the older you get, you see people who their struggles just kind of begin to snowball and the suffering they experience, if they don't have a theology for how to deal with it, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. Now, you may be thinking, you're just building this up. That's so dramatic. No, no one in here is going to take their life. Well, I certainly hope not. But I do believe that Satan will use suffering in our lives in order to redirect us and that he will take the life that God intended for us to live and the gifts that God intended for us to use and the ways in which God wants to change this world through us and he'll get us off track. And we'll lose the life that God intended if we don't have a way to deal with suffering. So I want us to think about and to acknowledge suffering and to see that suffering is the path to healing. And three quick truths as we think about how to apply this. And I've made these uh, A, B, and C. A is suffering is good for us. Now let me explain this. Let me clarify that statement. Suffering is good for us. Suffering can be good for us, but sin is not good for us. Suffering can be good for us, but sin is not good. So if some of you are here and you're 
life story is that you were raped as a child. You were sexually molested. Um, you were raped as an adult. Uh, you had a mom or a dad that beat on you. You had a parent who yelled at you. Those things were not good. God did not intend them. They are evil. I want to be clear about that. They are evil. God does not intend for sin to be part of our world. And God hates sin so much, he says that there will be a day where he will put those things to death and they will be no more. But in the midst of our suffering, so, so one way to think about that is it's important to think about our suffering because there's a lot of different wounds that we can receive. This is an example that I've always loved from Henry Cloud. He says, two men with a mask knock you out, cut you open and take all your money. One is a doctor and the other is a mugging. One is very good and one has nothing good. And, and so it's important that we think about the wounds that we receive and that some wounds are for healing and other wounds are, they're evil. But it's amazing that God can use them. It's important that we clarify what type of suffering we've experienced and be careful because even though God can use the mugging, the act itself is no good at all. In fact, it's evil. So Romans 5, 3 through 5, Paul just sums it up like this, and it's really helpful. He says, more than that, listen, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Some of you are in a place where you have made decisions in your life and those who look at you from the outside looking in, if you just judge your life according to how they judge you, you would be shamed. But this says hope does not put us to shame because our hope is in Jesus. Suffering causes us to rejoice, not in the pain. That'd be weird, right? But suffering causes us to rejoice in what the pain produces. The pain produces hope in Jesus. Suffering causes us to depend on the Lord. Suffering forces us to come face to face with our ugly self-reliance. And suffering forces us to look at our mistrust in God. And we're forced to embrace our limits. We're forced to humbly look to God. Or in times in which we face suffering, we have a couple of choices. We can either humbly embrace our limits and come to God, or we can react. We can grow angry at God. We can allow our mistrust to grow, which it allows us to experience, as my wife says, all the feels. You know, anxiety, fear, shame, anger. God, you didn't come through in the timing I wanted. And this is true in our lives on both a seasonal basis as well as a daily basis. You know, when I uh, pulled up and the oil was low in my car and I just had it in the shop and now it's sitting on the, on the side of Sam Cooper. Like, do I, what's my response? God, how could you allow this? I have a busy week. I have things I'm trying to do for you. You know, is that my reaction? Mistrust? Or is my reaction, God, I guess you have other plans. Man, I'm weak. I'm, I'm weak. I'm, my wallet's weak. <laughs> I have to take my car back to the shop. God, I need you. 
Are we gonna embrace our limits and lean into God and trust Him? Are we gonna react? The same is true when I look back on last year. You know, I painted kind of a feel sorry for Brad picture about last year. The truth is God taught me a lot through last year. God taught me that some things about my leadership. You know, he taught me that if I would rejoice in my sufferings, that it produces endurance. So I've helped to plant about five churches, three where I was full-time staff, and I've never stayed at any of them more than five years. And, and I'm at the five, I was at the five-year mark last year, and it's kind of like, okay, I don't really know how to do this. Like, I know how to do the first five years, but I don't know how to do six through ten, you know? I just know how to start stuff. I don't really know how to keep it going. And then in the midst of that, God's jerking 25% of our giving, 25% of our volunteers, and most of the staff away, and I'm going, okay, what are you doing here? And as I lean in and have some arguments with God, it produces this kind of endurance with me. Well, did I call you there, Brad? Did I call you to stay in Midtown? And I think he has. I'm not planning on going anywhere unless God says something. But as I'm working through this, this endurance produces character because I'm beginning to see, you know what? I can't do it all anymore, and I always try to do it all, and so I've got to get better at delegating. God's showing me things about my own leadership. He's showing me things about my character. And then in the midst of that, God's changing me. Suffering can be good for us. Secondly, suffering is good for others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul is just reminding us that although we would never wish the most difficult circumstances of our lives, even on our worst enemies, he is reminding us that we have been comforted by God. And if we've been comforted by him, and if we've experienced healing to the wounds that have been inflicted upon us, we can even reach a point in which we are thankful as we look back for those difficult circumstances. Because God is holding our stories together, we can be certain that he will not waste any part of our story, even the most difficult pieces of it. In fact, even the hardest, most misunderstood parts of the pain we've experienced, God will use those painful times in our lives as some of his greatest resources in the way that he allows us to minister to others. Suffering can be good for us, and suffering is good for others. Finally, suffering glorifies God. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9 says, Paul's, I love Paul's honesty. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? You ever been at a point where you're ministering so hard for God and you're facing so much persecution that's coming against you that you despair for life itself? Thankfully, I don't think that's our natural reoccurring patterns here in America. It's true in India. It's true in parts of Africa. It's true in parts of China. It's true all over the world. Maybe while the world's closer to God than we are. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul feared for his very life, but he was able to embrace his suffering because he sees the higher purpose in pointing to the glory of God. See, suffering demonstrates our weaknesses and it highlights our need for God. And so we stand up with strength under the worst circumstances. And when we do that, it points to our dependence on a greater power, a power that's out.